All right, so we're in First John chapter 4. We're going to back up. We're in verse 4. We're going to back up verse 1 and just read those first few verses and then pick up there in verse 4. But uh, towards the end of chapter 3, and in a lot of chapter 4 deals with love, deals with how we know love, how, how we know the love of God is in us, uh, how we know that we love God. And you'll find that word love repeatedly uh, mentioned here uh, in John chapter 4. And so that's where we're going to be at this morning, looking at uh, love and how we can know we're children of God by we us loving God, those types of things as well. So, so in 1 John chapter 4, uh, backing up here to verse 1, it says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Now, you remember, we mentioned last time that one of the groups that uh, he was writing to, one of the reasons he's writing to uh, these individuals here was because in their location, there were a group of people known as the Gnostics, and they didn't believe in Christ coming in the flesh. In fact, as we go through here, that we he mentions many things because they believe he didn't come in the flesh, and they even said that maybe he appeared as if he was in the flesh, but not really. And so that's who he's addressing, because in this location during this time period, that's the kind of people they're dealing with. And so that's what we read about here when he says, whoever believes that Jesus is, let me back up here, uh, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Well, we understand that, let's be honest, the drunk on the street would probably tell you that, right? But could they, well, are they following God's word? No. And so the, the context of this is important. It's not just confessing Christ. It's, he points this out because, in their location, in their time period, the Gnostics do not believe in Christ coming in flesh. And so he hits that several times throughout these chapters. And so that's what he's dealing with here in verses 1 and 2. No doubt verse 1, as we mentioned last week, the importance of uh, making sure that when we uh, listen to teachers, that we make sure we have our Bibles open because we know there are many false prophets or false teachers that have gone out into the world. Uh, we dealt with that uh, last time. Uh, so... Uh, verse 2, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit confesses that Jesus is, is uh, Christ, that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming, is now already in the world. Now, just to quickly recap, we remember mentioned many times before the Antichrist is anyone who's against Christ. There's not a single Antichrist mentioned in the Bible. Uh, as we mentioned before, some say uh, that a Antichrist is coming sometime in the future. Uh, there's going to be some supreme Antichrist. Well, in verse 3, he's already in the world. So it can't be something that's future. It has to, be, it has to be individuals who are literally against Christ. And he mentions that also back in chapter 3 more, uh, as we talked about previously. So that brings us up to verse 4 here in chapter 4. And so he, he's dealing with those who do not believe that Christ is coming into the flesh, we know that, as I mentioned before, this can't be just the idea that anyone who confesses that Christ from the flesh is saved because the Bible teaches there's much more required of us and Scripture does not contradict. And so it's not just that idea. Now, looking at verse 4, he says here, You are of God, little children, speaking to the Christians, is who that is addressed to there. You are of God, the reference to Christians, little children, that's just a term of endearment, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Uh, 
Um, how many of you remember William Claxton? He used to quote this verse all the time. Uh, he had a lot of struggles when he was alive, but he would quote this verse all, all, all the time. Uh, and in context, what he, and in, in putting this in, in, in what we're talking about here, we have a strength that the world does not have because the Christian has help from God. We have the, we have the teaching and the encouragement we find from God's word. We find the answering of prayers and we pray to God. And so that's why we read about he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. He who is in the world can be reference to maybe just the sinner, but many times it's applied to the devil, to Satan, and the many tools he has in this world. And so he says, you who are, you are of God, little children, again, talking Christians, have overcome them. That is those who are worldly. That is those who are against God. Because he who is in you, again, God, is greater than he who is in the world, that is Satan. And so the Christian is, is, has the power to overcome the wicked things we face in this world because we have God on our side through the written word, through prayers to God, having those prayers answered. God is with us. Now, if that is the case, if we have the power to overcome the world and to, to resist temptation and do not fall into the many traps of the world and the false ideas of the world because of the, because of the Bible, because of prayers and things such as that, would it also be true that the person who does not follow God, the person who does not take advantage of the teaching that's found within God's word, the person who doesn't have their prayers answered by God, that they will not be able to overcome the world, will that also be true? Yes, right? If one is true, the opposite is true. So the Christian can overcome the world. The non-Christian cannot overcome the world because they do not have God, as he says there in verse 4, in them. And so we are able to overcome the world and the sins and the various hardships and all the things that go along with being a faithful servant of God. He says in verse 5, they are of the world. Therefore, they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. Now, they can be referenced to the Gnostics. It can be referenced to sinners and worldly people in general. I don't think either one would go would be wrong there. They are of the world. Therefore, they speak as of the world. What do you think that means? He says, therefore, they speak as of the world. Have you ever talked to someone and their language revealed maybe not maybe not the idea of their foul language, so that to be part of it, but their what they talked about, how they said it, and the way they their outlook on things revealed to you that they're not a person who follows God? I think that's what he's talking about there, don't you? They speak as of the world, means they don't sound like a Christian, they don't act like a Christian, they sound like a worldly person. And so he says uh, here in verse 5, <clears throat> they speak as of the world because, and he says there in verse uh, 5, they are of the world, uh, and the world hears them. And so their comrades, so to speak, are those who are other sinners, worldly people. Ungodly people listen to un other ungodly people, right? It's, it's, you know, when ungodly people listen to the truth, and listen and with, it, with the intent of obeying, right? They're no longer ungodly people, right? But ungodly people who listen to other ungodly people, they're not going to come to God, are they? Sinners who listen to sinners are rarely going to come to Christ. They're rarely going to be propelled to come to Christ. And so the world hears and they listen to them because they are of their own. And it's also one of the reasons why it's so hard to date, well, any time period, 
to reach out to the lost and be successful because the world wants is, well, they want to hear what they want to hear. I'm not saying that we're not we're going to be unsuccessful always in reaching out to people. We're going to be very successful, obviously. But there are always going to be those who are not going to listen. Those who are of the world, they're going to only listen to those who are of the world also. And so they have no desire uh, to listen to that, to listen to God's word. And so they are of the world, therefore they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. Kind of the idea that they have their own wicked group there, and that's who they listen to, no one else. He says in verse 6, notice the difference here, we are of God. The we is a reference to Christians, right? We are of God. You notice the we is always referred to as Christians, and the they, in this context, is always referred to as the world, worldly people, right? We, they. We are not like they, right? There's a difference there. And so we, he says, are of God, verse 6. He who knows God hears us. Doesn't that prove verse 5? He who knows God hears us because what they're speaking and preaching is God's word, right? He already mentioned, going back to verse 1 of this chapter, how there's false teachers out there and false prophets, to use his term, who are going out in the world, right? And thus they're to test every spirit. But here he says in verse 6, he who knows God hears us. It means a person who knows God is following God. They shouldn't listen to us because they also know that we, what we are teaching is of God. And we are of God, verse 6. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. You think about that for a second in verse 6. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. The spirit of truth... And the spirit really is the idea of the attitude we have towards truth, right? Sometimes, depending on the context, we're referencing the Holy Spirit, but here that's not what he's talking about. It's the spirit of truth. It's more our attitude, our approach towards things. And here he says, by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. We know those who want the truth. They have the attitude. We want to hear the truth, even if it hurts. You know, as one mother said one time, he said, you stepped on my toes today, but okay you know that's the spirit of truth right wanting to hear the truth and then he says in the spirit of error well does the spirit of error want truth no they want something else we can list a whole gaggle of things that fall underneath the idea of error but they want something that does not uh it's not going to offend them and really if we think about that for a moment we find that throughout the bible of examples of individuals who did not want the truth in fact, I believe it's during Isaiah's time that the uh, people there were, were telling the prophets, do not prophesy to us smooth things, not prophesy to us right things, prophesy deceits. They were literally asking for lies, just lie to us. Just tell us what sound, what feels good. That's what we want. Now, people today will not come out and say that. I've never heard that. But we sometimes we get pretty close. I was in the Bible class somewhere else one time and we were they were teaching the class i wasn't teaching it not that it would really matter people can say all kinds of things sometimes in bible classes but when i was visiting there they were talking about i remember the topic and one individual spoke up and said we all just need to find things we can agree on and stick with that and the idea he was talking about i heard of the term core beliefs if you look on some churches websites you'll find things that's called core beliefs and what they are are just a few things that they think everybody can agree on. Jesus is the Son of God. He came in the flesh. Uh, you know, we have to 
obey him to have salvation. They don't go into a whole lot of detail because if you, if you go too far, you're going to start offending people and people are not going to say, well, I don't agree with that. And so they stick with the very broad core beliefs or tenets of faith sometimes is that you find. And, and they're very broad because they want to bring everybody in and have that, that idea of truth that really what's there is not truth, it's error because the Bible gets very, very detailed if we're honest, in numerous places. In fact, as we find here in verse 6, this is pretty specific to say there's a spirit of truth and a spirit of error because if you ask the world today, is everybody going to heaven? What are they going to say? Oh, yes, definitely. Right? A loving God wouldn't send someone to hell. Well, that's not the case at all. A loving God will not allow the faithful to have to tolerate the unfaithful for eternity. That's not going to happen. We've seen that throughout the Bible as well. So there is a spirit of truth and a spirit of error there in verse 6. And he says, by this we know the spirit of truth and spirit of error. The person who's listening to the truth and willing to receive it and to follow it and apply it, all those types of things, the spirit of truth. The person who rejects it, does not want to hear it, is the spirit of error. Now, when we say that, you have to remember we're not talking about, we can't apply this in the sense that when we say, well, someone disagrees with me, so they have a spirit of error. That's not what we're talking about. When someone disagrees with the Bible and says, I don't believe that, or don't you believe, or I believe, that's the spirit of error. Because we all may have opinions on certain things, may not necessarily be wrong, but when it comes to fundamentals and requirements in order to have salvation and worship God properly and other types of things are a absolute requirement. We have to go, we have to make sure that we are not going beyond the Bible because when we disagree with the Bible, we disagree with God. And then we have that spirit of error. One last thought here before we move on. One individual at a place I was visiting, uh, we were having a conversation over dinner. There was a, group there, and they brought up a question, and I was trying to help answer that, and they said, well, I know the Bible says, but I believe, what spirit is that? Spirit of error, right? Yeah, and so we have to realize that sometimes we too, if we're not careful, can allow ourselves to slip in that because our emotions get involved. We hear something that we haven't heard before, right? I mean, I'll be honest, I wasn't always a member of the Church of Christ. And so when I started reading and teaching and hearing things and being in, being in Bible study, I heard things that I didn't really agree with until I studied more and read some more than, oh, I better agree with it because that's what the Bible teaches. And so the spirit of error is just rejecting truth and not wanting any part of it. Where the spirit of truth is, we want it, and if it hurts us, we'll make the changes. That's what we want in our lives and hopefully in the lives of others as well. All right, verse 7. Uh, any comments before I move on? Anytime, raise your hand because I get going. And so, yeah, just raise your hand or speak up if you have a comment here. Verse 7 of 1 John 4. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Now, again, in context, is love alone all we need? No. But what he's pointing out is there are certain things that we cannot have or we cannot be without and then be of God. And he says here in verse 7, love is one of them. 
when someone preaches and teaches the truth, there should be love behind it. And I've said before, I know others have said the same thing, that when we get up and preach and teach, our intention is not to say, hey, let's see how mad I can make this person. No. Because that's not love, is it? The Bible tells us we're to speak the truth in love. But looking here at verse 7, let us love one another. Now, if we love one another, if you go back to verse 6, will that also include teaching the truth? Yeah. Because we can't get heaven on lies. We can't have a life that's pleasing to God by following after lies. So uh, we have to follow the truth. Let, uh, let us love one another, for love is of God, which means if we want to be followers of God, we have to have love, right? Love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. That means we should not be <laughs> bitter, angry, unloving people, right? Now, as I mentioned before, we may have differences of opinions. We may have different personalities. But when love leaves our realm or how we feel about others, no matter how no we may give us someone, we should always love them, right? I mean, someone may annoy us here, but if they're on the side of the road injured, are we still going to pull over and stop and help them? Well, I sure hope so. Love is more than just those types of things, right? Our children may get on nerves, but we still love them. Our spouse, we may get on their nerves. We still love, they still love us, right? And so love is, is not the idea of, of always getting along, but it's, it's loving through all those types of things, right? The long-suffering there. And so it's not just the idea, it's not the idea of a perfect we always get along. We never have a disagreement. That's not what he's talking about. Moses loved the people of Israel, but rest assured, they drove him nuts, didn't they? You remember when he first began, he, he, when, they, when they were complaining, he went to God and said, this is how it's going to be. Just kill me here and now. And remember, they, they brought out and they, they selected numerous other people who would help him with the people of Israel. I think there ended up being like, I forget how many, but there were several there, not just one which tells you the workload that he had, right? He loved Israel, but they drove him crazy. And let's be honest, we can go throughout the Bible and find where the men of God loved God's people, but at times they drove him crazy. Did, they, did Christ ever say things that indicated he loved people, but they still frustrated him? We think that term, oh, you little faith means, or how do you not understand this, things such as that. He loved them, but he get frustrated with them. I think there was clearly times of that. But let us love one another, verse 7, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. So if we have love for one another, that's part of being a person who knows God and is of God. It's part of being a Christian. Verse 8, he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. He does not love. Now, if you do not love someone, there are going to be a lot of things you are unwilling to do, right? Uh, things that maybe you, you don't even think about trying to, to do for other individuals. That's a lack of love. Or maybe the way you speak to other individuals, things such as that. The list goes on and on and on. But he, he says here, who does not love does not know God. What, do you, what does that mean? Can you be a Christian and not have love for one another? No. You think about it, Christ, Romans 5, verse 8 tells us uh, uh, God demonstrates his own love toward us. And while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. He demonstrates his own love toward us, means he shows how much we love us. Even while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. That's showing his love, right? Well, that goes right back to verse 7 as well. But here in verse 8, 
If we do not have love, we cannot, we should not say we're a Christian and we don't love one another. For God, he says, is love. Now, some would ask, how can we say God is love when this is the same God who destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah? The same God who flooded the world and killed perhaps hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people. Because God is love in the sense that, and you know that he is, but he also is one who hates sin, doesn't he? How long did the people in Noah's time have to repent? All the time we took him to build the ark, right? How long did the people of Sodom and Gomorrah have to repent? Until the messengers of God came, right? They had a long time. People of God and, and, and people, individuals throughout the Bible are always giving them time to repent, and when they don't, God pours out his wrath. Does that mean he didn't love them? No. If he didn't love them, he was just saying, you know what, I'm tired of dealing with them. They get no chance, I'm going to kill them all. But we don't find that in the Bible. We find sometimes are years of people being shown patience and then still refusing, right? You think about Zephaniah, as we talked about last week. Um, you find that phrase there, he says, for, you know, for all the things he did for them, yet they, they did not listen. There, I think it's the last chapter there, and he destroyed them, right? And so God is love, and yes, God is a, a, the God who still punishes those who are, who are in sin. Verse 9. In this, the love of God was manifested toward, toward us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world, that we might live through him. What, is that, what do we say that word manifested means? You might remember? Revealed, right? Revealed to us. Christ is manifested in the flesh. He was revealed to us. His love, love of God was manifested toward us or revealed toward us. And he tells us how that God has sent his only begotten son. Only begotten's idea is this unique, is one of a kind son there. Literally what that word means, only begotten or begotten uh, son. He says, into the world that we might live through him. Now, we know, as we mentioned, I think it was in this class. But you think about what Christ left to, to come to the earth. And the Bible reveals heaven, right? I think we were talking about this in a podcast, I think. Uh, we were talking about the song, Lamb of God. It talked about how Christ was at the side of God before he came to the earth. And here we find that same idea, right? He was sent by God, which means he was with God before he came, which tells us he was in heaven, a place, as the Bible reveals, is no pain, no sorrow, nothing like that. In fact, where Christ is until we until we join him after the judgment, uh there's God, there's the Holy Spirit, there's Christ, there's angels of God. And the Bible reveals that's all because everyone else is in paradise, right? Until the judgment. And Christ left that, was sent to the earth there in verse 9. And we know, as I mentioned before, all the things he endured, right? all the hardships, all the mockings, all the persecutions. And the list just goes on and on and on. So that we, as he says there in verse 9, might live through him. What does that word might indicate? Is it a guarantee? No. If someone says, we might do that, we might do this, we, you think, well, okay, they haven't really decided yet. And that's what that means there. It's up to us to decide. Just because Christ came to earth, fulfilled all the prophecies he was to fulfill, died on the cross for mankind, shed his blood, died, went to the tomb, rose again, 
does not mean that we all now have eternal life. It means it's available to us when we obey Christ, right? When we put him on in baptism. But that is if we do those things, right? We look there in verse 9 again, that we might live through him. Now, live through him means when we live as a Christian, we live by following the commandments of Christ. How we live is according to Christ and God's word. God's word, Christ, same idea in the New Testament, right? And so we live through him. We live so that we can bring glory to God. We can try to bring others to Christ. And then we also can get to heaven. We live through him if we obey Verse 10, in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now that word propitiation literally means there, it says a means of appease, appeasing or a uh, appeasement, which means that when Christ died on the cross, he, he made appeasement for our sins, right? That is, he died for, to cover our sins by his blood. And so, therefore, he is, he is that propitiation or that atonement for our sins. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. And so, again, he's showing God's love for us. He says here in verse 9 that he loved us and sent his son. We find that same idea in verse 9, right? Verse 10, and to be the propitiation or the atonement for our sins. You think about, I can't even begin to imagine the cross and what it was like. We, we read about it. We, we, we look at it in some history books. We look at maybe some of the medical things that was involved in that. And it was a device was designed for us to torture someone and they would die of basically just torture, right? And it was such a strong death sentence. And I think many, many commentators have mentioned this, not that it really matters, but I, I happen to agree with them as well. Is that when, when when the people call cried out crucify him and Pilate replied why and what evil has he done? I think part of the reason was because crucifixion it was far worse than just beheading someone or having them brought out and, and hanged. Crucifixion was was reserved for reserved and viewed as the worst possible punishment for an individual. And so we think about him being the propitiation or the atonement for our sins. That happened when he died on the cross for us, enduring unbelievable pain. And the Bible tells us there also, we go back and look at the gospel accounts, that when Christ was on the cross, we know that darkness fell. And Christ says, my God, my God, why are you forsaken me? And we understand, or hope we do, that the idea there was Christ was carrying the sins of all the world. And when God forsook him, is because God can't look upon that much sin. Some will say, well, God didn't really forsake him. Well, that's not what Christ said. And so the idea was that he, he did not look upon him because of the sin of all the world. You think about it, all past, present, and any sin that was to come. Now, if you think about it, think about the sins in your own life. And then think about the sins that others have committed. That's a whole lot of sin, isn't it? And so that's why we have that. We have, the Bible says that that darkness fell. Uh, Christ calls out, why are you forsaking me? The idea there, if you find in verse 10, he, he did this to make atonement for our sins, right? Because God loves us. Now, if God loves us and God commands us to love one another, can't we love one another? 
He's not asking too much of us, is he? As we look later, I believe it's in 1 John 5, it talks about how uh, his, his commandments are not grievous or not burdensome. And so this command to love one another, you know, if we're a kid and you get in trouble and, we, and your parents just said, just love your brother, we say, well, that's an easy. <laughs> okay. But we are literally to do that, to love one another. Verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we, we also ought to love one another. Again, just what I was talking about there. If God loved us, we should, as he says, we ought to love one another. If God can do all these things for us, surely we can follow the command and the example to love one another. Any comments or questions before we continue here? All right, let's look at verse 12. He says here, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. No one, he says, has seen God at any time. You ever heard someone say, well, you know, I saw God in a, in a vision or in a dream. When I say, here's what I mean in today's world. Because people today like to talk about how they saw God, right? What does verse 12 say? No one has seen God at any time. Now, in reality, I think sometimes when people say those things, this is what I think of, is that somehow they have been convicted of how they're living. Maybe it's because a conversation they have with someone. Maybe it's because they've been reading their Bible. Maybe because they, they actually showed up for, for a, a worship service they haven't been to maybe in years sometimes. People come back and say, well, I feel like God spoke to me. When in reality, the Bible just got to them. <laughs> and so this idea of seeing God at any time, no one has seen God at any time. No one has. Now we know uh, in passages like Genesis 32, 30, where Jacob wrestled with a man and then proclaimed he had seen God face to face. We know that he saw actually an angel or the representative of God because it was as if he saw God face to face. So it couldn't, it, the scripture doesn't contradict. So did he really see God? Well, no, he saw someone who represented God, right? Now we know that numerous times that the Bible, messengers have been sent, like in the days of Song Gomorrah, uh, and other times as well that spoke on behalf of God. And that's the idea we find there in Genesis 32, 30 as well. And so here in verse 12, 1 John 4, it says, No one has seen God at any time. But then he kind of shows us, in a sense, how we do see God. And it's through love is what he's talking about here. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. How do we see God today? By loving God, and we do that by doing what? By following his commandments, right? And his commandments are found in his words. So if we want to see God, we have to open, open up our Bibles. We have to read and study because the more we read the Bible, and we hear that song, that kid song, right? The more we read the Bible, and I'm not seeing that word. Anyway, uh, he, the more we read the Bible, the more we learn about God, the, the, the more we understand about God, and the closer we can come to God. Well, let's be honest. Sometimes when we read about God, if we're not careful, we learn about him and we don't like what God requires of us. Right? We don't like what we might say see God as, and so we kind of back away. But in reality, that shouldn't be how we react, is it? You think about your, your spouse, the more you get to know, you know, when you're dating, you're getting to know them as you're married, you get to know them more, obviously. And you grow, hopefully, closer together during that time. 
Well, with God, it's the same idea. We grow closer to him by reading his word. And we and through that, we can learn more about him and love him and also learn of his love for us, just like we have here in verse 12. Because we think about this. The people in the world, a lot of them know what John 3.16 says. Probably, right? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. He replaced him, he should not perish, have everlasting life, right? It mentions God's love, that he gave his son to die for us, those types of things. But doesn't 1 John 4 go into even more detail about that? But we don't know that unless we read it, right? And so when we read God's word, we learn more about his love for us, and we learn because of his love for us, we, we love him even more, right? Look at verse 12. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. That means he shows his love in a perfect way for us. He gave all that he could for mankind. You ever heard the phrase, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink? And I think in many ways, that's what I think about with God. He, he, he has led us to the water saying, I give you my son, I give you the word. Now, you just have to obey. You're at the water, but not everybody drinks, right? And so we have to make sure that we take advantage of what God has done for us. That's why we saw back in verse uh, verse 11 there, excuse me, verse 9, that word might live through him. Because there, people can be led and be shown the truth, but then not obey it. So no one has seen God at any time. We love one another. God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. And so God, again, shows his love for mankind, how we can know how much God loves us and how we should love him in, in, uh, in response as well. Verse 13 says, By this we know that we abide in him, and he in he and us, because he has given us of his spirit. Now you notice there he says he has given us of his spirit, not literally his spirit. But uh, let's back up before we get to that. By this we know that we abide in him, I meaning this is how we know that we are in God. He and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. How do we know that we are in God? We'll look at the previous verses, verse 12 and previous. Because we love God, because we love the brethren, because we know how much God loves us, and we live through Christ. Verse 13, he and he in us, because he has given us his spirit there in verse 13. Uh, the written word is the only way we have of knowing how to live in God, right? And that God is living in us. So giving us of his spirit, how did God give us his spirit? Well, we find his spirit or find who God is in the word, don't we? You know, some people will talk about going out in nature and, and just, you know, experiencing God. Don't get me wrong. I love going out and enjoying nature. But I've never, quote, experienced God. I'm not sure exactly what that means. But do I, do I see God's handiwork? Yeah. Do I can look upon it and know that this is here because God has created the world and all, all living things and everything in it? Yeah. And so I can see God's handiwork. Sometimes people will say, well, well I see God in nature. What we mean by that is we see his handiwork, right? Do we see God in the written word? Yes. And through his written word, he has revealed to us how we are to live our lives and how we can have heaven as our home. The Holy Spirit, when it spoke, when it worked for the apostles from Acts 2 moving forward until their death, uh, the purpose of that was to, as, as Christ says, was to bring them to all, to bring them to remembrance, all things he had said, 
and to reveal to them everything basically they need to teach and preach, right? Now, I don't believe every word of the apostles is recorded because I think some things were not, were not necessary to be recorded for us to go to heaven in the sense that we don't need to know every conversation the Apostle Paul ever had with anyone. But do we need to know his teaching concerning salvation that came from Christ? Yeah. Do we need to know his teaching about daily living that came from Christ through the Holy Spirit? Yeah. And so in that sense, the Holy Spirit has provided for us the written word, which gives us God and all things we need to do to have heaven as our home. And I hope that's clearer than mud there. But uh, the spirit is revealed. The spirit of God is seen. And we learn about God through the written word, not in a, a miraculous sense today. And sometimes we hear people claim a miraculous, well, God spoke to me, uh, you, know, you know, the Spirit dwells in me, and they kind of say it in a, in a more miraculous sense. But we know that the Bible, just by following some steps that we mentioned before, that's not possible, is it? We know the gifts of the Holy Spirit ended, and the apostles died, and no one could pass it on, and so when those who received it, they died. That was it, right? Now, sometimes the providence of God does come into play. Can we always pick out when God's providence, that is, when something just worked out to God's will? Can we always pick out when that happened, when that took place? No. But I think sometimes we can see certain situations and think, that could be by the providence of God that those things happen. Uh, but uh, to say the Holy Spirit dwells in us and works in us in a miraculous way, the Bible, this New Testament, which we are in today, does not support uh, that idea. Look at verse 14 here with me now. And we have seen and testified that this father has sent the son as savior of the world. So we have seen and testified means they, have, they are witnesses of it, right? They have seen it with their own eyes. They have heard it. Sometimes you see eyewitnesses, meaning they have seen it, witnesses or testify here. And also the idea they have heard it. Uh, and so they have seen Christ. Uh, they have seen the love of God. He says, we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world, which means we can verify that God sent His Son to save mankind. They can testify. If someone testifies in a court case, the idea is they provide evidence that is concrete. Well, here in verse 14, unlike the world we live in today, when they testify, it is concrete. They can say that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Verse 13, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. Now again, if you were to pull this out of context, some would say, well, see, all you have to do is confess that Christ is the Son of God. But again, who is He talking to, as you mentioned before? Well, the Gnostics. The Gnostics did not... Uh, believe, uh, some did not believe that Christ was the divine son. They didn't believe he came in the flesh. They didn't believe I mean, the works that he did. And so this, again, a lot of this is pointing towards Gnostics because we can't pull this out and say, well, all I can do is confess because in Acts 2, that's not what Peter told those 3,000 or how many people were baptized at that particular moment. That's not what he told them. He didn't say confess. He said repent and be baptized, didn't he? And so when, and I said to say that when one requirement is placed upon people, it's replaced, uh, replaced upon, uh, uh, placed upon one group of people, it's a place upon them all. If Peter said in Acts 2.38, repent, be baptized, that applies to everyone, doesn't it? Not, ju not just men. And so when we find here verse 15, here, uh, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God, 
Well, you understand that's part of it, right? We have to realize that Christ is the Son of God. And so he is really preaching and teaching here about the love of God and about the, the guarantee and the certainty that Christ came in the flesh and lived on the earth and he preached and he taught and he died and he rose again because there are those there at that time who did not believe that. The Gnostics had, had strong problems against the idea of Christ uh, being the Son of God and coming to the earth, definitely in the physical sense as well. Verse 16, And we have known and believed the love of God, Believe, believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and he abides in love, abides in God, and God in him. Again, we cannot have love, or we cannot be without love, and then still have God. We have to love one another. We have to love God. We have to love the Son of God. We have to love his word. All those things we've seen that's been mentioned throughout this context, we have to love also including our brethren as well. We have known and believed that believe the love of the love that God has for us. I mean, we have known and we know how much God loves us, and God is love, as he says in verse 16. And he who and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. If we love God, now let's be honest, a lot of people say they love God, don't they? If we say we love God, what does that mean? Does that mean we do what he says? Look over with me. Hopefully this will keep up with me. And John 14 and verse 15. What does verse 15 say? If you love me, what? Keep my commandments. And so loving God means we follow his word. And John, 1 John 4 and verse 16, when he talks about us loving God, it means we have to keep his word. We cannot, we, it's not truthful to say that we love God and then not follow him. Uh, and so two things go hand in hand there. Verse 17. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of, of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. Now, that sounds a little interesting way that's worded, doesn't it? He says here in verse 17, love has been perfected among us in this, and what? And that God has sent his son down the cross for us, right? That we may have boldness in the day of judgment, that is, that we may have security and confidence on the judgment day that we have heaven as our home because we believe in Christ, because we obey Christ, and we continue to obey Christ, because as he is, so are we in this world, verse 17. Uh, we are in this world to make known Christ, and he came to seek and save the lost, and so do we. When Christ came to earth, his purpose was to seek and save the lost. Because as, because as he is, he came to seek and save the lost in the world, so are we in this world. Christ is the light of all mankind. What does Matthew 5 tell us? We're Christians. Light of the world, Right? They see the sun of the hill cannot be hidden, right? Nor do you put a lamp and put it under a basket. But no, you put a lampstand that gives light to you all here in the house. We are the light of the world today. We are the light for Christ today. And so just as Christ came to the world to seek and save the lost, we are trying to do the same thing today. We are trying to bring others to Christ as well. Okay, we're going to stop there this morning.